This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. You know, the only thing worse than a cancelled flight is the fight to get your money back from a cancelled flight. Long phone calls, waiting, chatbots, usually ending with the incredibly generous offer of a travel credit. But why aren't we just getting refunds straight away? In a bit, we're going to tell you about a massive lawsuit that Qantas has been hit with. It's trying to get refunds and compensation for people who had flights cancelled during COVID. Also, we know pretty much every picture uploaded onto social media is manipulated. But what about video content? It's something we don't think much about. How much of what you're seeing there is actually what it seems? First, though. Hack. We've failed as a league, as a group of players that we haven't supported them. On Triple J. In 2023, there are still parts of our society here in Australia where people feel they can't come out. As gay, bisexual, trans. It may seem for some people hard to believe, but it's true. And sport is a really complicated area. Because while we've recently been celebrating the Matildas and we spoke about the huge role that many of those players have in representing queer communities, men's sport is different. Yeah, we're seeing more pride rounds, discussions around identity in sport. But do you know, still in Australia, one of our most popular sporting codes has never had a single male player, present or past, publicly come out as gay or bisexual. And that's the AFL. Why? Well, the ABC's Four Corners has been investigating. Reporter Louise Milligan's here to tell us about it. And hey, just a warning, there's going to be some homophobic language that we hear in this, swearing as well. That's part of the chat. But hey, Louise, thanks for coming on Hack. Oh, thanks for having me. What made you want to look into this and the AFL specifically? I've been wanting to have a look at this for years, to be honest, because I've been thinking about the subject for years, that it is so strange that the AFL has never had a publicly identifying gay male player. And I just assumed, to be honest, that the story would happen before I got to it. Jason Ball was a amateur AFL player who came out in 2012 after there was a homophobic incident on the MCG. Jason thought that the floodgates would open, that there would be other people who would join him. And that was 11 years ago and still no one else. We've called this program The Silence because the silence is so pervasive. And the sensitivity around this, you know, I would have a lot of like older men saying to me on the phone when I was making my research calls, oh, this is very sensitive, Louise. And I was sort of like, really? Like it's 2023. We have my a marriage equality in this country, I don't think it is sensitive in the rest of Australia and certainly not amongst your listeners. You know, I have teenagers myself and they're completely nonplussed by, you know, the issue of sexuality in this regard. But in the AFL, there's something else going on. And it's a really fascinating thing to contrast with the women's competition. And as you said in your intro, the Matildas. So, Louise, I guess the big question is why? Why is it like this in the AFL? You know, it's a really complex and nuanced thing. So what we are often told or what we often have been told in our research is that within the clubs it's safe for players to be out and certainly Gillan McLaughlin, the AFL chief executive, said that there were players who were out in their clubs but 
they feel that in his words, it's too much of a burden to be the first player to come out. Carrying that burden for the rest of your life would be very difficult. And when I spoke to gay players and LGBTIQ plus um, advocates about that, they said what a lost opportunity that was, you know, for Gillan McLaughlin, that he could have said something positive, but instead, in their view, he kind of like ushered the gay players back into the closet because he was painting it as a negative, the idea of being publicly out. And I don't think he meant it that way. He was trying to empathise with them. But what the gay players and advocates have said to us is that he should have said something like, if this is not a safe space, I want the gay players to come to me and tell me what we as a code can do better. Let's go to a comment now from Bob Murphy, former captain of the Western Bulldogs. You spoke to him, Louise, and he says he's a strong advocate, ally of the gay community, but he did admit to some of the horrible things he'd said in the past, homophobic language, stuff that he's ashamed of now. We're going to play some of that. I just want to give a really strong language warning here because it's hectic stuff that he says. If you've got kids in the car, turn down the radio now. This is Bob Murphy about the kind of language he used to use when he was playing. And I would refer to myself as a fucking poofter. You fucking poofter. And at the time, I didn't even... It was a thoughtless... I was just thinking about the goal and the technique. I hated it about myself so much and it, it, you know, it then forces you to ask deeper questions like, why? Why is that your reaction? Then you start, who walked behind me? Who else was around? What if a gay footballer who I played with, who would have assumed I was an ally, heard me talk like that about myself in a way that's self-flagellation? That's former Western Bulldogs captain Bob Murphy speaking to Louise Milligan uh, for her ABC Four Corners investigation into the AFL, into why uh, all these years on there's still not a single male player who's come out as gay or bisexual, the reasons behind that. Louise, you say you're speaking to players or you've spoken to players. Are they players who haven't come out yet or are they not professional players, players in kind of lower community competitions? Both of the above. We spoke off the record to players who haven't come out yet because they still weren't ready. I mean, I did speak to a former player. You know, he really supported the idea that we were doing the story and, you know, thanked me for that. But he said, I don't even watch football anymore. I don't have anything to do with football. And to be honest, Louise to participate in this program would be really bad for my mental health. And he's been out of the game for quite a long time. So it just shows you the impact that all of this has on these men. I just want to go to a comment from someone you interviewed, Michael O'Donnell, who is uh, playing for Sydney's UNSW Eastern Suburbs Bulldogs team. He stopped playing for more than a decade because he didn't feel he was accepted on and off the field. I lost 15 years because there was no one ahead of me. If we can have someone come out and stop that happening, there will be a bunch of young, very talented AFL players who end up in the the top level of the game. And that'd be a great legacy for someone to leave. In terms of the AFL broadly, 
you mentioned that you spoke to those in who are responsible for diversity within the AFL. What exactly did they say? Um, so Tanya Hosh, the inclusion and social policy manager or general manager for the AFL, she was honest. I mean, Andrew Dimitru, the former chief executive of the AFL, signed a pledge with other leaders in sport back in 2014 that they would tackle homophobia. At that time, Andrew Dimitriou promised that the AFL would be a world leader in tackling homophobia. And I said to Tanya Hosh, given the statistics, is the AFL a world leader in tackling homophobia? And she could only but say, no, we're not. We need to do more. It's not to say that they haven't done anything. Like They said yes to marriage equality and, in fact, changed their sign from AFL to YES for yes back in 2018. So, you know, they have done things from time to time, but it's one thing that they haven't done which the research shows really, really works in terms of changing homophobic attitudes and stopping or or at least diminishing homophobic language is engaging in a pride round. So the AFLW has a pride round and arguably doesn't need it as much because there are so many women who are comfortable to be queer. The, The AFL doesn't have one and has resisted having one and it's not quite clear why, there is a pride match between the Saints and the Swans, uh, but it hasn't sort of broadened out. Louise Milligan, after spending so much time on this, speaking with everyone you have, digging into all of the statistics, the reports, the figures, do you think things are going to change anytime soon? Like, did it feel like there's some optimism that things might be better within the AFL? What is going to change is the young people who are, for instance, your listeners, the generation where, you know, they are nonplussed by these sorts of things. And we've been told there are young men, teenagers who are coming through the system who will already be out. So they will enter the AFL system already out on their Instagram, for instance. And that is probably when the change is going to happen. And hopefully there will be a few of them at at, at once. Well, it's definitely an interesting story, well worth a watch. Louise, thank you very much for your time. And if you do want to see Louise Milligan's story on Four Corners, it'll be on ABC TV, also on iView and YouTube. We do have messages coming through. Someone says, Ted Lasso deals with a player coming out. It's really nicely done. Maybe more dramas can help with this kind of process in society. Another person says, Gillan McLaughlin's the most humble and most open man you'll meet. He's an absolute advocate. And somebody else, a couple of messages actually, saying maybe, just maybe, there's no gay men in the AFL. It's a crazy thought, isn't it? This often comes up when we talk about this issue and... The fact is, you just heard Louise say she's been speaking to professional players who haven't come out. We heard it earlier this year when we spoke to Josh Cavallo, who said he's also in contact with professional players who don't feel comfortable coming out. So it's not that. Hack, we're not just seeking compensation on behalf of the people who are still yet to receive their money back. It's on behalf of everyone. On Triple J. Have you got any travel credits from airlines just sitting there? Well, maybe you wanted to use them and it hasn't worked out, it's been a nightmare. Because trying to redeem these little credits can be so frustrating. And you're often thinking, I just want my money back. Why can't I get my money back? Well, Qantas is being taken to court over this, a class action lawsuit. 
representing hundreds of thousands of travellers. And it's saying that Qantas should have issued refunds immediately for COVID cancellations and not offering refunds straight away breached consumer law. If you're one of the people impacted by this, I'm keen to hear from you how hard it's been to get your money back. In a bit, we're going to talk to an expert about your rights. But first, here's April McLennan with the latest. Travellers are right now facing yet another day of chaos with several flights cancelled this morning. And to northern Italy as the country struggles to contain the coronavirus outbreak. The travel industry is in crisis, whether it's airlines, holiday resorts. When COVID-19 hit Australian shores, the government restricted international and domestic travel. And this meant heaps of flights were cancelled. For Kieran Plim and his young family, their Qantas flights to New Zealand and the UK were both canned. And when he tried to get a refund, it was a bit more tricky than he thought it was going to be. We started making phone calls and basically two hours, three hours, you know, emails, phone dropping out, calling back again, speaking to people in multiple countries, trying to work out exactly when we were going to see you know, the, the, the money back for not one flight, but both flights. Kieran says after about six months, they managed to get their money back for the UK flights. But Qantas gave them credits for the trip to New Zealand. And the family didn't really know how to use them and they would have rathered a refund. I'm not the only one. They're, the big, they're a big company at the top end of town. And stuff like this, they just don't, they just don't get held accountable. They just don't. A class action's now been lodged against Qantas, and it's on behalf of these customers who were given credits when their flights were cancelled during the pandemic. None of this would have occurred if Qantas did what its own terms and conditions said it should do, which is when it cancels a flight in these circumstances, it should refund people. That's partner of Echo Law, Andrew Paul. They're the firm filing the class action. Andrew says Qantas acted unlawfully. And you may be thinking, was there something in the terms and conditions that screwed me over here? Well, Andrew says in this instance, he thinks the fine print was actually in favour of the customers. But it'll be up to the court to look at the evidence and figure out who's in the wrong here. The other thing is we say that Qantas misled people because it, it wrote to everyone and said, look, we recognise this is a difficult time and we're putting in place this new special travel credits program. And it made it sound like it was acting in everyone's interests when in fact what the airline was doing was protecting its own financial position at the expense of those customers. As of June 2023, there were around $400 million of these COVID credits remaining. And the airline reckons most of these credits range from about 100 to 500 bucks. Qantas says it's now made it easier for customers to get a refund, but Echo Law says people are still entitled to compensation. So when they were first issued, they, they came with a term and condition that uh, said, the flight that's booked using the credits must be at least the same value as the previous flight or higher. And that meant people were pushed into a higher price bracket than they would have otherwise been. In a response to questions from Triple J Hack, Qantas says it completely rejects these claims. We have already processed well in excess of $1 billion in refunds from COVID credits for customers who were impacted by lockdowns and border closures. The majority of customers with COVID credits can get a refund and we've been running full page ads and sending emails to encourage customers who want a refund to contact us directly. The Australian Competition and Consumer Commission is also investigating the flight credit policy. Hack on Triple J.
April McLennan with that update. Messages coming through, heaps of them. Someone says, I got COVID just before a friend's wedding and the flight credits are still outstanding. I even flew Qantas for the first post-lockdown international flight. The credits are so hard to redeem. I have a flight back to Melbourne I need to buy, but I can't use these credits because it'll start overseas. Let's get into this a bit more, find out what your rights are if this has happened to you. Jared Brody is the chair of the Consumers Federation of Australia and he's with me now. G'day, Jared. Thanks for coming on Hack. Yeah, good afternoon. Are you surprised about this class action, the one that's been launched against Qantas? Look, I, I'm not surprised. I'm pleased to see that um, there are uh, law firms out there wanting to keep um, big corporate Australia, like um, big airlines, uh, including Qantas, accountable. Um, and that's what the legal system should be doing. Unfortunately, when it comes to consumer rights in the aviation sector, is that I think they're pretty wanting. Uh, we, we It can be really difficult to resolve simple complaints with um, a, a, an airline. Uh, Qantas, I think, is one of the most uh, complained about companies in Australia. Unlike other countries, we don't have independent dispute resolution bodies like an ombudsman looking after our airline sector. And without that in place, then people, yeah, uh, uh, we rely on things like class actions to get justice. Do you have to be part of a class action, though, to get some kind of action? What are your options? So if people think they have been misled or there has been breaches of consumer laws in relation to a a travel uh, arrangement or their refund rights, uh, they can uh, make a complaint to a regulator. A regulator generally won't resolve a matter individually on your behalf, but they might uh, raise it higher up within a a company. But really, uh, it's going to be up to the consumer if they want to take legal action, and they can generally do that through a civil and administrative tribunal in their state. Um, uh, But of course, that can be fees associated with that. It can take a lot of time. Uh, I think uh, where I am in Victoria, the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal is currently saying it's going to take at least 36 weeks to get a, a hearing. So it's not really a practical option for many people. Um, and so without that, uh, we really need either two things. One is that the regulators to take action against companies uh, for breaches of consumer laws or, uh, and maybe together, having class action uh, conduct to act on behalf of a group of consumers who are affected by the same uh, problem. Yeah, someone on the text line says, I aged a few years while trying to get a refund from Qantas for nine months. There are no lines of direct contact. They say they're going to do something, never do. I mean, talks are around about an official body like an ombudsman to oversee Australian airlines, keep them accountable. That is something you think we need, Jared. Uh, absolutely. So if you have a complaint with a, a telecommunications company, a, an energy company or a a bank or insurer, you can go to an ombudsman in that entity, in that sector, um, and get free, effective, uh, um, quick dispute resolution. Uh, those ombudsmen uh, uh, can make decisions according to the law, good industry practice, and what's fair and reasonable in all the circumstances. And it's generally very quick. Most complaints are resolved within 60 or 90 days, sometimes longer if it's more complex. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have such an ombudsman in the in the travel and tourism industry, and I think that's something that's desperately needed. Do you think that this class action could like change things forever in terms of set a precedent that would mean, yeah, people will just get refunds immediately if they want one? Well, it would really depends on what happens during that action. Often, class actions do settle without a, a court finding, so I think it's yet to be determined exactly. Uh, what what will happen. But what I would say is I do think there's an, a, a, 
a case for government to mandate minimum requirements for travel vouchers and credits um, offered by travel and tourism businesses when they um, uh, don't, uh, you know, aren't able to provide a service. You know, these should be at minimum terms. They should be easily transferable. You should be able to split them over multiple bookings. I hear that's one of the big problems with Qantas mm. is that, you you know, you can't, uh, they're not easily accessible to use your credit. So if we had minimum standards in, in the law uh, in this regard, I think that would be something that would help people. Well, hey, we do appreciate your insight into it. Jared Brody from the Consumers Federation of Australia, thanks very much for coming on Hack. Thanks so much. And someone on the text line, we waited over 18 months for a refund for cancelled pandemic flights through Qantas. An absolute joke. Someone else, 27 hours worth of hold times to get through to the airline in March 2020. Longest hold time before the call dropped was five hours. And someone else trying to get a travel refund for a company for a trip from April 2020. We were initially offered a refund, which was then withdrawn, then told if we were unable to use our credit before the December 2022, we'd get a refund and we still haven't received it. A lot of stories there. Hack. Just by using a single app, I can make my chest look larger, my stomach look smaller and my thighs look larger. Like it's absolutely insane. On Triple J. We all know that when a picture's posted on social media, everything may not be as it seems. And you come to expect that, right? There are so many different apps, built-in functions, allow us to tweak a little bit here, a little bit there. And it might be just a little bit, or it might be a whole lot. We expect that with pictures, but what about videos? Because the new studies found that young women are less likely to believe that videos can also be edited to change appearance. And so when they see stuff on Instagram, TikTok, they're more likely to think that it's real. Let's find out more about this research. Dr. Jasmine Farduli is the senior author of the study. She's from UNSW. Dr. Farduli, thanks for coming on Hack. Thank you for having me. What kind of editing are we talking about that's being made uh, to videos on TikTok, Instagram to manipulate physical appearance? Like you said, I think there's a real range of degrees to which people can edit their appearance on social media. So they can just be changing like the colours and the images of videos to completely changing the, the shape and size of one's body. So I think there's been a lot of discussion recently about new filters and applications that have become available to videos to completely change your bodies to match unattainable societal beauty ideals. And I think the more and edited and enhanced the content is and the more that it promotes a beauty ideal that is not achievable for for almost anybody, that's when we get particularly concerned about the impacts that it can have. So just to be clear with the videos and the editing that's happening there, is it stuff to make people seem thinner, to make parts of their bodies seem smaller? Is that what we're talking about? It can be, yeah. So there are filters available that make people's waists smaller, make their legs longer and then thinner. Um, really, yeah, make, matching what a lot of ideals are promoted within society as being attractive at the moment. I mean, beauty ideals change, we know that. But um, yes, they're cinching in the waist, making legs longer and, you know, and butts more rounded. There's also facial filters as well. They've been probably available. People may be more aware of those, we're not sure. But, yeah, potentially completely changing one's body shape. 
Yeah, I reckon the facial filters on videos people probably have seen quite a bit of over the years, but it's the other stuff they may not be as aware of, which is what your study looked at. How did the study work? So in our study, we exposed young women to either images of people who match beauty ideals or videos of these exact same women in the exact same context, um, like 10-second videos. And what we found was that looking at the content was the same. So it didn't matter if it was an image or if it was the videos. It made young women feel worse about their bodies, put them in a more negative mood. They made negative comparisons to women in the images and internalised those beauty ideals to a greater extent. But on top of that, we asked whether the the extent to which they thought the content they viewed had been edited and just in general how much they think videos or images can be edited. And we found a difference there. So in our study, women were more likely to think that an image could be edited than a video. And then when we asked them in what ways can images and videos be edited, you know, young women thought that the videos could be enhanced with good lighting or makeup or styling or posing, but it's very much kind of a bit more natural. Whereas when they looked at the when we asked them about images, filters was one of the top things that came up in addition to makeup and lighting and things like that as well. So I think it's interesting that even if young women were saying, yes, we think that videos can be enhanced to improve change someone's appearance, the way they thought it was being enhanced wasn't really in a way that's completely artificially changing their appearance. So about 82% of women thought that images could be edited with apps and only 62% thought that videos could be. So there was quite a big difference there. Right. In terms of the impact that it's having on people looking at it, they don't have to have a lot of exposure to it. It can only be a few seconds, right? Yeah, so in our study, we had 10, 10 images or videos for 10 seconds. So <laughs> math on the top of my head right now. But uh, yeah, it was only like a, min- a minute or two that we, we um, exposed people in our study and that was enough to make them feel bad. So yeah, it doesn't take long to, to for this type of content to make people feel bad about their bodies. Do we know if the reverse is true, that if people are seeing body positive content, that that will have a good impact on people? So a lot of my research is focusing on this now, and I think it depends what you mean by body positive, because there's so much content that comes up under body positive. But looking at bodies that are more natural and have more diverse body sizes, that can improve body image. Yes. So it really just depends, yeah, what what body positive content you're looking at. But there's actually, you know, I think exciting potential to use that content to improve body image. So social media isn't all negative. It really just depends what you're looking at. If you're looking at these ideal images and videos that have been enhanced, that's likely to make you feel bad. But if you're looking at content that's more natural, more diverse ranges of appearance, that may actually make you feel good. Do you think there's a, an onus there on the platforms themselves to be, you know, taking this on board and and doing things that uh, can help consumers of social media when it comes to manipulated video content? I think the platforms could be doing more to make it harder for people to use filters that change their bodies to promote ide- beauty ideals that are unrealistic and, 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 and very specific. So I think any inbuilt filters that allow people to change their bodies and make it easier are going to be used potentially more frequently and then people are going to be more exposed to that content. I think that platforms could do more to stop these types of filters being available, this easily available to users and potentially, you know, updating their algorithms to ensure that this type of content isn't constantly being viewed or promoted to users. It's interesting stuff. Very interesting research. We appreciate you explaining it to us. Dr. Jasmine Fardouli from UNSW, thanks for coming on Hack. 
Thanks for having me. Hack on Triple J. And we've got a lot of messages still coming through about some of the other stories that we covered today. The Qantas class action, obviously a lot of people impacted by travel credits. Someone says, thank you for talking about this issue. I've been waiting for more than four years and still don't have the full correct amount back. Another person says, hours and hours of phone calls being hung up on. Case numbers being left sitting for over a year, still unresolved and I'm desperate to see my parents in the UK. Another person says, guys, Qantas has extreme profit margins. They need lots of full aeroplanes to just break even. They have high prices because of their immaculate safety history. That was from David. And then another person says, we've been waiting for a refund from Etihad for nearly two years now since January 2021. Told I was getting the refund back in May, but have been calling every week since. And they say it's still being resolved. It is so so frustrating. I've been through it 10 times trying to sort out a refund or redeem one of these travel credits. Also messages coming through about the Four Corners investigation into the AFL and why, you know, no male players have been able to come out as gay or bisexual. Someone says, as a gay man in my 30s living in Melbourne, there are footballers out in the community and I know why they don't come out, but I wish one would. I know how much it would have mattered to me as a teenager and no one will care after the first. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.